Amen. Good morning, church family. For Travis Hart. Well, thank you, whoever gave me my For Travis Hart this morning. I appreciate that. And the water. Is this my water, Michael? Thank you for that as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 17, Faith That Saves, will be the sermon we're going to be looking at. If you're first time with us or first time in a long time, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, just kind of get caught up real quick. We're working through the Gospel of Luke, and we are seeing in this passage here today that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. What that means is he is committed to God the Father's plan to see him on the cross, and uh, he, is, he knows that's happening. And while he's making this journey, we have this stopover. Uh, this is a text that probably is fairly familiar to most people, particularly if you have been in a church in any amount of time, as it's the parable or it's the, uh, the text of Jesus healing the ten lepers. So let's just jump into it this morning and <coughs> begin looking at it together. Uh, there we are. If you don't have it with you, it's on the screen to my right or my left. Uh, This is the Word of God. Uh, Hear it this morning. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts this morning because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever, endures forever. Okay, when we read a text like this, immediately the thing that jumps out to us is that we should have hearts that are thankful. I think even the most hardened atheist were to pick up the Bible and read this text. If Richard Dawkins was standing here before you, one of the most hardened atheists we have in our culture, and he read this text, he would understand that part of what this text is saying is you need to be a person of thanksgiving. Uh, As I said in my Sunday school class a minute ago, uh, Spurgeon, the great preacher of yesterday in England, would often say, if the language of heaven is thanksgiving, being a thankful people, the language of hell is surely grumbling and complaining. So we should be people who are marked by thanksgiving. So that's a very surface level, immediate takeaway from the text. So thanks for coming out this morning. Hope everybody has a thankful week. And this concludes the sermon today, right? That's not all I'm going to say about it. You knew you weren't getting off that easy, didn't you? All right, uh, but there's something else that if you're familiar with this text, you might be tempted to overlook. In the text today, Jesus is making a very bold statement about who he is 
and what he does. So let's see if we can see this and unpack this in the text this morning. First of all, let us have a little looking at context, right? Look at context because you can say anything you want. Any text out of context is a pretext to say whatever you want. So let's make sure we understand the text here and the context of the passage. On his way to Jerusalem, I've already mentioned this, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. This rings like it did in Acts as the Apostle Paul was asked. He told, if you go to Jerusalem, they will bound your hands and they will put you to death. And Paul said, I have set my face toward Jerusalem anyway. I know what awaits there for me. I'm going to go on to Jerusalem and face what is there. And this is the mentality that Jesus has. Luke has already told us that he has discerned from the Pharisees that they mean to inflict him harm and to kill him and to stop him. He understands that is what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Calvary and a cross is waiting for him there, but he is going there nonetheless and he will not be deterred in his mission. So this is the first thing we learn in this. Second thing we learn is where we are geographically. Look what it says here. Samaria and what? Galilee. You're on the edge of two areas here. Now, uh, for those of you who are not as much into the Old Testament, uh, let me say this. You need the Old Testament, right? You think of the Bible as twin pillars that reveal who God is. The Old Testament is just as important of a pillar as the New Testament. So let me refresh you on a couple of things about Samaria from the Old Testament. The break with Samaria and the problems in the Samaritan area go all the way back to right after King Solomon died in the Old Testament. King Solomon represents the ark or the heyday of the golden day of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. When he died, his son took over and he decided that he would be harsher with God's people than his father was. And because of that, in the meeting, the ten kingdoms of the north said, To your tent, O Israel. And they broke off and started their own kingdom. Their new king, Jeroboam, did not want them running to Jerusalem to worship there in the temple that Solomon had built. So he established two other places in the north for them to go worship. Now, uh, what was more condemnable in this was Jeroboam not only set up these places of worship apart from Jerusalem, but he also set up golden calves to be worshipped in these places in the north. And as time went on, the northern kingdom departed more from the first five books of the law in the Old Testament, and their worship became more intermingled as they themselves intermingled with the pagan cultures that surrounded them. And so we have records that show that not only were they practicing Judaism, but they were doing something called syncretism. That's a big word, and it basically just means this, that it's where you try to marry the faith that you know to be right and true with a new and different faith. So example of that would be, or a a different religious system. Uh, Sometimes missionaries talk about syncretism on the mission field. And what they mean by that is they go to a particular area, say in Papua New Guinea, I'll just pick on a place far, far away. And they, they have ambulance there and all the people believe in animalism and animalistic practices and souls of animals. And they wear these ambulance to represent that. Well, as they come to Christianity, when they synchronize that, they keep their ambulance on. They don't lose them. They just start wearing them and tucking them in their church on Sunday morning so the pastor doesn't see them when they come to church. They still believe and hold to that, but they're trying to mix it and mingle with Christianity. Uh, We have examples of this in a lot of places, but we know that the northern kingdom became 
very syncretistic towards Zoroastrianism. That was a religion that was brought in with Judaism. And so they were sort of a mixed people. They were mixed up on their theology. They were mixed up on their location to worship. They were mixed up in their parents and lineage. Many times you would have Jews who were faithful in the north who would marry uh, pagans that surrounded them. So these children would have a mom who was Jewish and a dad who was a Zoroastrianist or, or worshipped you know, one of the pagan gods that were surrounded there. And so the Jews, the Samaritans were very confused and were viewed by those outside of Jerusalem as foreigners. Okay? All right. Now, verse 12. <clears throat> so he's on the edge of these two areas. Like Judea, clearly Jewish, stayed with the southern kingdom. Samaria, you know the history that is there. Enter... Jesus here in interaction with ten lepers. And as he entered a village, he met, was met by ten lepers. Now, leprosy was a very wide-range disease. It was not limited to what we would commonly refer to as just leprosy in modern terms, but any sort of abrasion on the skin where there was white in a rash. I'm very glad that I live in 20. 22, and I'm a preacher of the gospel, and I'm not a priest at this time period because part of the priest's job, first of all, I would have aged out by now. If you were 40 uh, years old and older as a priest, you were too old to serve anymore. Did you know that? So 40, you're done. So I'd be done by now. The second thing is, though, you function not just to help people understand the Word of God, but you also function kind of like a dermatologist. You had, if people had any kind of skin abrasion, they had to go see the priest in the village to be given a bill of clean health and say, okay, you don't have leprosy or you do have leprosy. And if you did have leprosy, you had to be marginalized and pushed outside the village or city. And what we see happening here is this group of 10 leopards sort of find themselves, these people that are suffering from this disease. I guess misery truly does love company, right? Nobody wants to be alone because these people are alienated from their family, their friends. They can't enjoy the celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles. They can't enjoy the celebration of the Passover where they celebrate what God has done in deliverance from Egypt. They can't be a part of any of the holidays that their family is a part of. They are pushed outside. And even when people approach them, this is why they're not, in the, they're not in the village. They're on the outside and marginal. Even when people are approaching them, they have to yell, unclean, unclean, so that when people get too close to them, they're warning them so they won't catch the leprosy that they could possibly spread to others. So it was a hard life. And no doubt these misfits have sort of fought, found each other. They have fallen together in this group. And they're calling out to Jesus here. Now, it's important that we understand this is not a time where we had social security. We didn't have disability. We didn't have all these social safety nets at this time. So what was practiced is in your faith, a good work you would do at the time, and even still now uh, to some degree, maybe a lesser degree, but still there, is it was seen that you would give to the poor. The poor was usually the lame, the, bl- the blind, those who are not able to work. Those who have leprosy still need to eat. They still need to live. And so part of your being a good faith and being faithful to the law, being faithful to justice and taking care of the poor, is that people would give to people that had leprosy. They would give to the the blind and the lame, and they could live and eat and survive because of that. And so that's the situation Jesus finds upon them there. He sees them here. And look what the next, that's why they're standing at a distance, right? They're, They're not allowed in the village. They've been deemed unclean. And they call out to this here. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy 
on us, this Greek word here, Jesus' master, epistola, the Greek word here, it mean, it's only used seven times in the Gospel of Luke. It means a ruler or a leader or someone who is in a position of authority. You could almost bring it over. The closest thing we have in 21st century English might be boss, master, or sir, but even that falls a little bit short of what they're saying to Jesus and crying out to them. And they're saying here, what are they asking for in verse 13? Are they asking for anything specific? No, they're not. So that usually means they want money. <laughs> they're not asking for anything specific, so they're wanting money is what they're wanting here. Okay, uh, They're asking for Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. So what do we see here? These lepers are at a distance. They lift up their voice in unity. And they need deliverance from the disease that plagues them. They have a mentality of a collective voice and not an individual voice. Um, this is odd for 21st century Americans. We don't think in terms collectively too much, probably to our detriment, right? Because the Bible really is written more for a collective mentality and a collective thinking. Let me see if I can give you an example to understand this cultural barrier that I'm talking about. I had a friend uh, who was my uh, missions professor in seminary, and he was a missionary down south in... um, One of the countries there, I can't remember which one it was right now, so I'm not going to say. But what he found was a group that loved to play soccer. Big soccer team. Him and his wife coached these girls. Won the big championship game. So he took them to what was the equivalent of Baskin-Robbins there in South America. And he said, all right, girls, you can have any flavor you want. And so what would we expect? We'd expect the girls to be like, I want chocolate. I want vanilla. I want strawberry. Well, here's what the girls did. The soccer team huddled up together. They just sort of stood at him and looked at him for a minute. They didn't say anything. They huddled up together. They discussed it. And then they went out of the huddle, and one of the girls went, we will have strawberry. (laughs) The whole group was going to have the exact same flavor. Uh, We don't tend to think that way as Americans. Like, we don't think collectively in this regard. Uh, You know, many times, mealtime is a nightmare enough, right? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? No, it's like, are you hungry or not? Yes or no? It's not like a, this is not a, this isn't Piccadilly. This isn't like build your own dinner, right? It's like, you're either going to eat what's made, not going to eat what's made, right? One of the two. So, we're we're so individualistic that we struggle to sit down for daily meals together. It kind of grinds me a little bit, but anyway, that's a different thing. All right, he saw this and said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And when they went, they were, a unique word here that Luke uses, cleanse. Remember, Luke is a medical doctor. Luke frequently, through his writings in both Acts and in Luke, makes a distinction between those who are healed because of modern medicine practices of the day and those who are healed miraculously. This word in 14 indicates a miraculous healing, not ones who are healed by medical practice of the day. Okay? Uh, this feels a lot to me like a story from 2 Kings in the Old Testament, a, a text from 2 Kings 5. Uh, how many of you remember the story of Nahum and Elisha? Do you remember that story? A pagan who had been infected with some sort of leprosy in his day, and he couldn't get any relief from it. And he had heard of this great prophet in Israel named Elisha. So he sent men to 
talked to him on his behalf and Elisha told him to go and to wash in the river Jordan seven times and his flesh would be restored and that he would be healed. And Nahum was kind of offended by that. He was like, I don't want to go down to Israel and be washed. Our water here is cleaner than the water in the Jordan. That's like a trash river, right? It's kind of like how people at Watauga view Boone Lake, right? I want to go swim in that lake. It's a lake where the sewage off of Bluff City goes into the water. I don't want to swim in that water. We have this pristine lake up here called Watauga. Are you kidding me? We're good over here, right? That's the, that was the mentality he had being a foreigner. But he had to swallow a big pill of humility. And he had to do it. And when he did it, guess what? What Elijah said would happen, happened. He's washed seven times in the Jordan and he was miraculously healed. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a parallel. We're seeing in some ways a forecast. We're seeing a prophecy of the coming prophet king, Jesus Christ. Except here's the reality. How many people did Jesus heal in this narrative today? Did he heal one or did he heal ten? He healed ten, didn't he? So one thing we're learning is that Jesus is not just as powerful as Elisha in the Old Testament. He's at least ten times greater of a prophet than Elisha was in the Old Testament. In addition to this, uh, what else are we learning here? Well, let's advance and see. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and praised God with a loud voice. Now remember what Jesus said to go to the priest... And do what you must do. But it says here in the text, only one came back to him, right? What, what's going on here? Well, let's, let's dive into this a little bit, see if we can understand this. Why would there be just one? Remember at the beginning, it was like the girls at the ice cream shop. They had a voice they lifted up together. Now it's just one. But it says here he's praising God, and Luke even notes with a loud voice. I don't know if it was a voice that was just as loud as the ten, but it was a loud voice because of what God had done. He seems to recognize here, and he's made a connection between it's not just a man has healed me, it's not just a good teacher has healed me, but God himself has healed me. Jesus not only understands this, but he echoes this in verse 16. Look what it says. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him alms and thanks. Excuse me, it's going to be in verse 17. One more note before we go further. Go back to 16. One more note I want to make. Look what it says here in the last. Now he was a what? He didn't have a priest to go to, did he? He's not a Jew. He's got no priest to check him out, right? Not like the others did. Someone in town had checked him out and sent him out, but... I don't know what the check-in process was in Samaria, but it wasn't like it was in, in Jerusalem. It's highly probable that nine of the ten were Jews from Jewish towns and villages and were going back to the towns and villages they were in to be examined by their priests, get their certificate, get their hugs and kisses from family members and loved ones, and start celebrating and pass all of the delicious holiday meals that I have missed while I have been out with the other lepers. But this man has no priest. He falls at the feet of Jesus gives him thanks, but he has a priest now, doesn't he? He has a great high priest, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and says, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Now this is a 
This is a pointed question, isn't it? You know what I mean when I say a pointed question? It's meant to be a question with a touch of bite, right? And you feel the touch of bite that is there. I thought I healed ten of you. There's only one of you that's come back to thank me. Where are the other nine? It's fairly obvious. In this passage, the plain things are the main things. I don't feel I need to express this any further than that. Verse 18, look what Jesus says. Was no one found to return and give praise to who right there? What's it say in verse 18? To who? To God. So what we're seeing in this text is this Samaritan understands it's God that's healed him. And Jesus is affirming that it is God who has healed him. Verse 18, he is erasing a line and a distinction between him and the Father. See, this is a high Christological passage in verse 18. He is affirming he truly is God in the flesh. This is a verse that people are going to have a hard time getting around that want to reject the Trinity and the concept that God, Jesus, is God in human form. You know, this week a kid asked me, he said, Pastor Travis, how do we know God is real? <laughs> True story. Kid, young kid asked me this. He's about third grade, something like that. Here's, here's what I said. All right. Do you like Star Wars? Oh, yeah, I like Star Wars. Okay. You know who George Lucas is? No, I don't know who George Lucas is. Well, he created, he created Star Wars, and he's a very rich man now. Who's your favorite Star Wars character? I like Luke Skywalker. All right, Luke Skywalker. What if George Lucas wanted to have a conversation with Luke Skywalker? How would he do that? How would he do it? He would have to write himself into the film and make an appearance in the film and have a conversation with that character, wouldn't he? That's who Jesus is. It is God writing himself and revealing himself to all the creation he has made. It's Jesus is God in human form. And this verse affirms that. Now, as I said, anytime we're looking at a passage, we're asking, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And we're also asking, what is something unbelievable in this text? Verse 18, this last part here feels like it has more bite than it actually does. Except this foreigner. Now, be honest for a minute, we all live in a fairly conservative area, right? Tennessee normally goes red. So when you live in a conservative area, when we say this foreigner or that foreigner, it's usually not used in the context of being friendly, right? <laughs> when people say, this, these foreigners came in here, took our jobs, is that meant to be nice or is that meant to be, I don't like this, they need to leave? It's the latter, isn't it? Well, and sometimes in the South and I'm including myself in that, we get confused and we think the only true Americans are those born south of the Mason-Dixon line, right? So we think those that have funny accents and birth certificates from any state that is north of the Mason-Dixon line are also foreigners in our land, right? And I don't want them coming in here from California, New York, messing us up, right? Those, those foreigners here in East Tennessee, right? Now listen, if you're sitting in here and you have a birth certificate from another state, so do my children, so we're in the same boat you are, okay? So don't feel bad. I'm on your side here, okay? I'm on your side, all right? All right, so we use it in a sort of biting, unappreciative, downward way. When we, we're tempted to read our culture into this verse, but that's not what Jesus is saying, okay? A typical way Jesus interacts with people is that he excludes them to include them. Okay, I know it's weird, but it's what Jesus does. Frequently we see this in the scriptures, right? You know, the, the lady that touches 
uh, the, the lady that wants uh, to touch the hem of God. Even the dogs eat, right? She excludes herself in order to be included. This is, a, this is a regular pattern in the ministry of Jesus. And here Jesus is pointing out, this is a Samaritan. This is a half-breed. This is someone who's into syncretism. This is someone who... Uh, <laughs> This is someone who would be looked at by the elder brothers that reside in the pharisaical structure of the day. And they just say, tis, tis, that poor mixed up individual. And Jesus is saying, yes, you are a foreigner, but you're the only one here. You're the only one here who truly understands that God has not just healed your body, but he's healed your soul. You see that in the text there, right? He excludes to include. Right? He gives them the hard, harsh truth and reality in order that they may be included there, which is viewed in our culture as a bad thing, but it is a regular practice that Jesus makes. All right, so Jesus here recognizes the ingratitude of the nine, the gratitude of the Samaritan, the relationship here of the Father and the Son in this passage. And then finally, as we move forward here to verse 19, last verse, rise and go your way. Your faith has, I don't like that rendering at all. In the Greek, I don't like the way that they rendered it in the ESV. For those of you who came in here this morning with uh, King James, I think your King James would read, made you whole. Is that what it says? I don't like the King James either. (laughs) I don't like either one of them. The word here in Greek is sozo. It just is the basic word that means save. That's all it means. So you can read this here, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. That's the best rendering. That's the TTV, that's the Travis Tyler version. That's what I think is the best rendering of the text, okay? Now let me make a quick distinction here, right? Of course at one level, Jesus means you've been physically healed. I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but I am petrified, scared to death, of being in the ocean, just floating and bobbing around in the deepest parts. Like, do, have you seen the videos of the megalodons and the debate? Like, there's a debate, and I know I know it's funny to you all that I oftentimes am wandering around looking for snacks, but I don't want to be the snack floating around in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, you understand what I'm telling you? Okay, I don't want to be some little little bite there for a megalodon. All right. If I were to, we were on some kind of cruise, let's say we all, God, is, God decided to give us an opportunity to all be on a cruise together, and one of you, in, a, in an effort to get to the hors d'oeuvres, accidentally trips and knocks me overboard, and you know I'm petrified, and I'm floating around and saying, please save me, obviously I don't mean, give me a gospel presentation and make sure I understand how it is that I can get into the kingdom of heaven immediately, Right? What do I mean when I say, please save me? I mean, throw me something to float on and pull me back on board, right? Before a megalodon eats me. That's what I mean, right? And certainly in this text, the, Jesus is saying, yes, you have been saved. You've been saved from being socially ostracized. You have been saved from uh, your, your disease. But as so many times when Jesus makes efforts and says things, it's multifaceted, Right? You know, when a beam of light hits a crystal, it breaks that light into all these different colored beams. This man, his soul was healed, not just his body. Ten were healed, one was saved. Think about this for a minute. You know, I was looking at our prayer sheet this week. I don't know if you look at it. It goes out on our website, excuse me, on our email every week on Thursday. If you don't get it, 
let me know. Send an email to the church. We'll get you on the list. It gives you all the updates for the week, and the prayer list is there. We also give it out on Wednesday at the prayer night, prayer meeting. It's looking at all the people who have cancer. You know what I thought this week as I was preparing for this text and I was praying for these people with cancer? I thought, man, what if God answered my prayer and healed all these people on the cancer list, but none of them had a changed heart? What if God saved their body physically, cleaned them up from the cancer? That'd just be a wasted miracle, wouldn't it? What good would it be for a man or a woman to be saved from cancer only to die later and spend eternity in hell? I need a cleansed heart more than I need a healed body. Don't you? Don't you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we close this passage out today, we cry out to you. We are a people who are cut off from you and from your people. And if you will do so, God, if you will just save us as you have promised, we need it. Only then will we know that we are healed physically and spiritually. We need to be cleansed. Father, though the words of the leopard, we find the words of this that you need to cleanse us. We find grace, we find mercy because you paid the price for our sins. We have something so much better than mere physical healing. We have salvation in Christ Jesus. Protect us from simply getting a miracle that just... It's a taste of who you are. Give us salvation, Lord. Give us you. May we live our lives being a people known for thankfulness and thanking you. And Lord, if someone is watching today online or someone here in this room, I just pray you will open their hearts to your grace and to simply believing so that you may count their faith as righteousness as you did this leper who desperately needed you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning you have heard the gospel preached. You have seen Jesus not only heal the body, but heal the soul. You have seen a man who was saved not because of his faith, but because of the object of his faith. Is Christ calling you now? Is he calling you to his mercy? Won't you come? Or maybe you want to come down here in the front today. Maybe you just want to have a heart of thankfulness like the leper who has been healed. Maybe you're one who's been healed, but you don't thank him enough. And if we had a thousand services to do between now and when Jesus come back and we spent the whole time on our knees thanking him, I know it would not be enough. But maybe just for a minute this morning, you want to come forward, you just want to thank God it's open for you. Or maybe you want to follow the Lord the next best thing in baptism or being part of this body. I'll be in the back to receive you and pray with you as we sing. Please stand.